Thank you for the opportunity to speak. What I'm going to do is to talk fairly rapidly, I expect, through a series of slides where the aim is to give you something of a flavour of the research that we're doing, uh, why we took the approach that we have, and some a very, very brief sketch of some of the preliminary findings and the direction of thinking on the project. First thing to say then, just a bit about the background, we're a multidisciplinary team of seven, uh, jointly funded across Edinburgh University, led from Edinburgh and Strathclyde University. Um, the funding comes from the energy and communities stream of the Research Council's UK Energy Programme and Heat in the City was one of seven projects funded under that initiative. Uh, I think I'm right in saying it's the only one that was concerned directly with issues of heat and I'll say a bit more about that in a moment. We took quite a risky stance in putting the project together and I have to say I'm very grateful to the research councils for being willing to stand behind what I would say is quite a risky approach for them to fund, which was we set this up deliberately as collaborative research in the sense that we said, right, first what we'll do is find out what's been working elsewhere in creating more sustainable heating systems in cities. And after that, once we've learned enough about it, we will try to go out and talk to those interested bodies at urban level, particularly local authorities, who may have a role and an important part to play in taking some of those ideas forward, some of the things that we can learn from elsewhere forward. Um, and of course, we were not experts at the time, so we had to, we took the risk that, that we would learn enough in a relatively short time to be able to engage meaningfully in the development and exchange of knowledge with other critical actors in this field of thinking about how we heat our cities and urban areas in a more sustainable fashion. Um, we focused then very much on that picture of socio-technical innovation, whereas Robin was talking primarily about the engineering aspects of the system. Our focus primarily is on what one might call the social systemic innovations that are necessary to get all of us behind a program to decarbonize heat, to shift to a more low carbon uh, and lesser energy intensive way of heating our urban areas. Um, we resisted the idea that you can simply segregate between different levels of actors involved in creating that shift to low carbon heat systems. Um, so we look at the whole complex of actors from, and I would say for, it connects wonderfully, my W's, Wall Street through Westminster to the Wineford Estate in Mary Hill in Glasgow where we're doing some of our social surveying. And it connects it because finance, law, politics, householder practices, local government, government structures all have to come together to direct the kind of change that we're talking about. Uh, and those levels are interlocking. They don't simply, it's not, it's not a matter of oh, you know, individual behavior change at one bit and financial actors at another. They all intersect in very interesting ways at city and regional levels. Um, stage one then was what's worked already? What kinds of things can we find out that has worked? Stage two, which we're now into at the moment in, in year three, is working more closely with particular projects in Glasgow and Edinburgh, again a cross-sector collaboration, uh, private, public and community sectors uh, and discussing where those projects are going, trying to understand some of the hurdles and some of the opportunities. Um, why, why heat? Well, 
I quote from uh, the Department of Energy and Climate Change's heat strategy document released last March, the single biggest reason we use energy, but of course, something of the poor relative, the poor cousin, uh, in terms of energy policy in Britain. The policy focus also, I think, is fair to say, is macro and micro. Big energy, big government incentives for big energy utilities at one end, and a focus perhaps on behaviour change and domestic technologies, particularly at the other end of the spectrum, seemed particularly a few years back that there was a gap in the middle. So Heat in the City was set up explicitly to examine what happens at meso scale, if you like, that bit in the middle, uh, city and regional scale, where we argued, and the idea and the, and the question, if you like, that we're examining is that idea that action at city and regional scale is going to be critical if we're going to be able to make the sort of transition that policy is looking for and that legislation has committed us to. Um, and particularly for heat. Now what happens, I'm not going to talk in any detail about this, but if you begin to look at that regional scale and you say there is important potential for leadership and change at that meso level, at city and regional scale, it makes you look rather more carefully at how buildings interconnect and the fact that in Britain we tend to treat buildings as islands, standalone islands, in terms of the ways that we think about the supply of heat energy to those buildings. But if you focus, as a social scientist, an economist perhaps, on city scale, you ask yourself inevitably why we are not making more of the economies of scale that come about through the interconnection of buildings for the delivery of heat. And inevitably our attention as a research team has been drawn both to issues of energy saving through improved building standards and retrofitting of buildings, but also to the potential for interconnecting those buildings through uh, district energy systems delivering both heat and power at a regional or city level. Um, and I just took the points that are up there from the UK government's electricity market reform white paper. Page 104 has a very neat box, uh, maybe one of the slimmer references to heat, uh, but it is actually in there and it comments on the value of heat networks, actually, of linking our buildings together and providing heat at a district level as a contributor to decarbonising our heat and energy system more generally, security, resilience, reducing costs of network reinforcement, enabling electricity demand to be balanced more effectively, enabling a far greater degree of flexibility in the way that we configure our energy system if we have uh, district energy as one component in the bigger picture. So I want to say a lot more about that because I'm sure we'll have discussions over the next couple of days about those issues and the debate about to what extent that is the case and how that might be made to, to uh, add up. We have a whole lot of research data at this stage, year three of a four-year project, which is beginning to take shape, I guess, in my head at least, I hope in, in other team members as well. Uh, ranges from interviews and, and meetings, attending meetings, project development meetings, stakeholder meetings with practitioners in law, finance, engineering consultants, district energy utilities, some of the major utilities, public and community sector actors, um, as well as the project documents that go alongside those. 
We're also doing something I'm not really going to talk about immediately this morning, a time one, time two householder survey of a major retrofit of uh, 1,600 households on the Wineford Estate in Glasgow with a new district heating system. Um, that's a housing association body responsible for the structuring of that uh, concession contract with SSE as the uh, provider, the, the holder of the concession to supply the new district heating. Those that um, these are mostly tower blocks, uh, very poor area of Glasgow, high levels of fuel poverty, um, and what has been replaced is the old electric storage heating that was put in in the 60s and 70s when these were built and people have never been warm since until the district heating system has gone in. I can't resist the one quote. Um, the, the, the prize quote from our sample of first of time one householders was pure dead brilliant. She can heat her house. She doesn't have to go to bed at six o'clock in the evening when she gets in, kind of thing. So there's that whole range again, as I say, <laughs> risk-taking mode of researchers. We're also actively involved in uh, what I would describe as knowledge development, mutual knowledge development, not just knowledge exchange, through uh, the um, what we call the local authority district energy vanguard network of some now running at around 35 local authorities across the UK who are at various stages of project development in looking at the, uh, their own plans for district energy, um, as well as working with policy bodies, notably Scottish Government and UK DEC. So just a brief uh, comment on some of the preliminary findings. Well, very early stage, pretty clear. You can't not uh, trip over European local authorities and municipal authorities and their role in establishing workable low carbon heat systems in uh, continental Europe, northern European cities particularly. Um, it's also clear from our first year case studies where we looked at uh, Norway and the Netherlands, both of whom have early privatised energy markets, somewhat like the UK, not exactly similar but not that dissimilar, there, what's happened with uh, low carbon heat commitments is a more supportive public policy framework has been put in place in rather different ways in Norway and the Netherlands. What you can see from that, happening right behind that, is an accelerated development uh, of the take up of low carbon heat networks as a solution to decarbonising heat. Um, the other aspect is very striking that there are a significant number of UK urban authorities who are engaging in energy and carbon saving. Many of them don't get past thinking about energy efficiency measures and even then would say that it's very hard to get, the, in to get people in social housing or local housing beyond the social housing sector to take up free offers of energy efficiency and energy saving measures for their buildings. Uh, but some are going beyond that level and actually thinking again about energy services at a district level uh, as a means of meeting low carbon uh, targets in their area. So why is it so difficult in the UK? Because when I say there are a significant number, there are probably no more than 10%, around about 10% of UK local authorities who are interested in taking seriously, looking at the practice of developing district energy and low carbon heating. Um, why is it difficult? Well, we do not have an easy system to insert regional or distributed generation 
technologies and systems into, both socially, or, socially and technically. Um, partly because of the scale and complexity of our existing centralized energy systems, uh, the utilities sunk investments and public sunk investment uh, in grid and gas mains networks, um, and of course, main incentives focus still on big-scale electricity <coughs> generation and transmission, and there are very good predictable and secure returns on investment for the distribution network operators, which incentivize ongoing in, uh, investment in new substations and wires, rather than incentivizing perhaps efficiency at that meso scale, the city or regional scale. Of course, there's no regulatory framework for heat in Britain. There is no heat object as such. We have a gas market and electricity market, but no heat market, no heat provision as such. Uh, no local authority mandate, we kept being told, keep being told by the local authorities, we don't have a mandate to do this. And of course, if they did, it would have financial implications. Um, and at base, in those where we're working closely with local authorities and other actors <coughs> who are interested in configuring viable, feasible projects, there are different objectives at work for the municipalities and the corporate actors, quite different priorities and goals. And so a couple of quotes from people that we've interviewed just to illustrate that point. Uh, local authorities see this as a very difficult area to take on. A city being an energy manager is remote from senior director and political party interests. But some cities are doing this. Why? Well, I'll come back around to that at the end. I have to say that in the cases that we're studying, the local authority is a central actor because they are there for the long term, locally committed. They can't walk away. They can't say it's someone else's problem. At the end of the day, they know the problems are going to fetch up on their doorstep. Uh, of course, that requires resources, and those local authorities who are developing uh, district heating projects, low-carbon heat networks of various forms, um, scrabble for the human financial, the data, the time above all, the time and the ways to finance and underwrite that project development process. Um, what we see is fragmented knowledge and expertise. There is a lot of knowledge, but it's dispersed around Britain. It doesn't easily come together. It doesn't always intersect very effectively. There's no time, people would say, to share the knowledge that they do have and are developing as they go through that project process. Um, it's also interesting to, to see the diversity of objectives of business models and risk allocation that characterizes the sorts of projects that are underway. The structures that are put in place critically depend on the different priorities and the finance that's available at the time. And so what we're seeing at the moment is very diverse and disparate forms of energy service company, if you like, developments around different cities and urban areas of the UK. Depends on the starting points. But there are a whole series of business and governance models that come out of that. I'm not happy to talk to people during the rest of the meeting about some of these. We have examples of all of these. Long-term concession model. A city, perhaps city authority, contracts with a private provider over anything from 20 to 40 years to supply energy to a network of buildings. Um, seen as a way of offloading the risk from the public sector onto the private sector, but there is a debate 
about the costs to the public sector of that concession and whether the public sector gets a good enough deal for its assets. In-house developments, yet they have always been criticised in the past, local authorities are seen as not terribly efficient at managing energy services, hence the old generation of district heating has a rather bad name in many areas still in Britain. Joint ventures where a local authority and a utility combine in a special purpose vehicle to deliver energy services and the community non-profit and mutual versions where, which try to emulate something perhaps more like the Danish model of looking at community cooperatives who eventually will, uh, will manage and govern the, the business with strong steers from various the larger uh, representative actors there. What sits behind the decision about those kinds of four models, crudely, is a lot of full and frank discussion about <coughs> finance. Um, and when I say full and frank discussion, a lot of interest in, well, who is going to pay? At the end of the day, who's financing this? Who's taking the risk? How do we value local assets highly enough? How do we put together the component resources? I'll move on there. I can see I'm getting the, uh, the indication. So. Uh, Conventional, what I wanted to do was flag one direction of our thinking about finance because we hear a lot about the engineering of projects. Financial engineering is less discussed and yet is very much at the heart of whether these projects stay on the drawing board or get into the ground, whether the shovel starts digging up the ground. This is just a sample of the conventional project finance thinking uh, taken from an Ernst & Young presentation. Um, talking about debt being cheaper than equity, so load projects up with debt. That's the conventional understanding. Uh, but those principles, what we see, is that they constitute heat networks as high-risk enterprises. They make it very difficult for these kinds of energy saving and low-carbon measures to go forward. Uh, and yet, this is, and I have to thank my colleague Donald McKenzie at Edinburgh University for pointing this out to me, that conventional belief about the riskiness of taking an equity share in these kinds of uh, developments and these kinds of businesses is not actually supported by formal uh, financial economics. And, and the reason this is coming up, of course, is because the debate is going on about how much equity we should have in our banking sector rather than in our energy sector. But talking to Tony Norton earlier, uh, we were commenting that the energy sector and the banking sector are not so different in their financial structures. And of course, uh, equity, the belief that equity is terribly, terribly risky is actually damaging uh, the prospects of public investment in something that undoubtedly has a measurable public good. What we see in our data are actors' attempts, improvised attempts, to find new solutions to financially engineering these projects while securing relative advantage, of course, because each of these parties has to try and secure some advantage to, uh, to their interests and their objectives. But the orthodoxy about project finance structures the options. The crash has resulted undoubtedly in the kinds of experts we're talking to deconstructing the orthodoxies. There's a degree of iconoclasm out there which is very welcome and interesting to engage with as a researcher, of course, very rich. Um, but there is still resistance to the implications of radically different finance models for these kinds of projects 
even though the public good at cur currently is not captured in those models and arguably that's what we need as one task for researchers to find ways to capture the gross value added of these kinds of developments. What are the prospects then? Well, I would argue that we're finding that city and regional authorities are gatekeepers and significant actors. Bridging the gaps between their objectives, those of energy services and mobile finance capital, demands considerable governance capacity. It has high transaction costs for local governments who are not in a comfortable position. Nevertheless, a proportion are developing projects that test a wide variety of business and governance models. Um, in the current circumstances, I quote from one of the colleagues in the District Energy Vanguards network, these are mostly <coughs> developed by willful individuals. These are people who do it, who do their utmost despite themselves almost and despite a lot of the rules being stacked against them. So thank you very much uh, for the opportunity to speak.